Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Well, good morning. This morning I have with me Terry Brown, who is a professional dog trainer, and we're going to be chatting about scent work, about nose work. It's a uh, fun thing that you could do with your dog if you need something to do besides your search and rescue training, or you have an older dog, or perhaps a dog that doesn't have the ability to do search and rescue for a physical reason, but can still do some fun things with their nose. So that's the focus of today's interview. And first, Terry, can you tell my listeners something about yourself? Well, good morning, Eva, and I want to thank you for inviting me to your uh, podcast program here this morning. Uh, as you stated, my name is Terry Brown, and I'm a professional dog trainer operating in uh, central and southern New York. Uh, my dog training business, Nordic Mist Dog Training, been training professionally for 30 years, uh, and I've trained many dogs in tracking and nose work for the past 15 years. Uh, I've competed with these dogs and titled my dogs in these endeavors, as have many of my students. Okay, so first of all, what is canine nose work? Right, good question. Canine nose work in general, uh, is it offshoot from uh, detection dog training, many of our listeners being involved with search and rescue, uh, possibly law enforcement, will already be familiar with the basics of detection dog training, uh, cadaver dog training, where the dog is trained to follow uh, or find a specific odor, be uh, it a body or be it narcotics. Canine nose work is an offshoot of that where instead of finding those particular odors, the dog is trained to find various essential oils uh, such as birch, clove, anise, cypress, vanilla, etc. These types of oils, the dogs are trained to find them through a training process and then alert to the handler the location of these odors. It's a competitive activity. Our listeners could eventually choose to compete with this, or as you stated, it's a great activity for uh, the retired search and rescue dog, the the retired detection dog, or the dog that may have some of these physical uh, problems where they can't endure the rigors of search and rescue work. And, you know, can you elaborate on that, some of the benefits that people could get um, or their dogs from doing canine nose work? Right, many, many benefits. Uh, You and I both just touched on the uh, physical benefits as far as this is something that dogs with possibly some physical health problems can work through uh, as it's a very low-key activity. Uh, There's also a world of mental and emotional benefits Though it's a fairly simple activity, it does require 
a lot of mind power, if you will, from the dog as far as actively searching. It's a uh, activity that's going to burn off a lot of that physical, mental energy uh, that sometimes reactive dogs seem to have an excess with. Uh, so that will give them something to do and channel that energy. If our listeners perhaps have a shy or maybe a dog that they wish to build some mental drive with, uh, canine nose work is a good activity for that because done properly, it'll start build their confidence and their relationship working with their handler, uh, which will then improve their overall working performance. So to summarize, Eva, there's many benefits for canine nose work. Uh, We got some benefits for the dog that may be a little bit more physically challenged and can't do any sort of rigorous activity. Uh, This, the canine nose work will give them the opportunity to still be physical while performing these searches for these essential oils. There's a lot of mental and emotional benefits as far as the reactive or shy dog building their confidence up, uh, expending some mental and emotional energy, and quite simply, it's fun. Uh, It's fun for the handler. It's fun for the dogs. uh, Trained properly, they really get a lot out of this. And is there any prerequisite, anything that uh, the dog needs, you know, do they need basic obedience before starting something like nose work? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't require my students personally or professionally to have a, let's say, like an obedience title, okay, or even like a canine good citizen before we start the classes. So I would say overall in general, though it's not a requirement per se, uh, if that relationship is already there to begin with, as far as working with the handler and other endeavors, it is going to make it a little bit easier to segue into this activity. However, having said that, it's not a requirement. Somebody that just got their dog and is just starting to form a human-canine relationship with them could launch right into the activity of canine nose work without any problems or without any uh, previous obedience training. Okay. So what are some of the the usual target odors? Yeah, we mentioned a couple of them, Eva, and uh, I'll reiterate them here. These target odors are the ones that are used in the competitive aspect of canine nose work. Uh, There's three main odors that are used for the competition. Uh, I mentioned birch, anise, and clove. Those are the three odors that most people imprint their dogs on uh, simply because that then segues into the odors that the dogs are going to be required to detect in competition. Having said all that, certainly our listeners don't have to limit themselves to those, excuse me, those three particular odors. Uh, one of my own dogs, he's trained to indicate 56 different odors, uh, like, like, yeah, like peppermint, uh, vanilla, uh, spearmint, orange oil, uh, all, all sorts of different oils, vanilla, um, you name it, and you can basically train your dog to 
detect any particular odor. Uh, so I would basically say the three major odors are birch, anise, and clove. However, the listener could expand upon that for their own interest if they wish to do so. Yeah, I always wondered how they came up with those three odors because I wondered if they just went ABC. <laughs> they might have. Uh, that I can't answer. In all honesty, that's a that's a good hypothesis. So, <laughs> I guess it's as good as any. Um, yeah, really. So Okay, so now somebody's fired up and they say, okay, I want to try this. Where can they get the oil to train with? Most people uh, go online and they order the oils from some sort of supply store uh, that that deals with uh, that type of uh, that type of thing. There, uh, there are scent work, nose work kits that people can buy that. Excuse me. That have the odors, uh, all three of the main odors, if you will, the clove, anise, and birch, uh, together in the kit, as long as along with some other materials, which I think we'll probably cover a little bit later on. Uh, but an online source is usually where people get them. Uh, you could potentially go to your local health food store, uh, maybe a botanical supply store, uh, where I've found some of my students have gotten their essential oils from, uh, uh, soap making stores. If there's a all natural soap maker, uh, person that runs that type of business, sometimes they have these essential oils for sale. Uh, but by and large, there are many, many uh, supply stores online where our listeners could could order these oils as well as any other ones they might wish to use uh, for their dog training. One thing I would caution, though, make sure when you purchase the oils that you get them from a good source in that the oils are not diluted. There are many, many stores where the oils are diluted with alcohol or vegetable oil or some other unknown substance, and I caution our listeners to purchase those products, even though they might be more affordable. You want the full-strength, undiluted essential oil to work with your dog. That is, that is pretty important, actually. Okay, so now suppose I've assembled my, my kit. Um, is there any particular one of those oils I should start my training with? Most people start with birch, and I think that that is the quote-unquote standard starting oil simply because that's the way it's always been done. Uh, I know that sounds kind of silly, but... In all honesty, any of those oils, the dog can be started, the imprinting and training process, uh, any one of those three main oils, again, will reiterate birch, anise, and clove, uh, I find quite successfully the handler can take any of those oils and start the imprinting process uh, without any problems whatsoever. I think birch has just been the standard one to start with, probably because it smells the sweetest of them all. I think when our listeners get their kit and try to uh, detect the odor themselves, I think they're going to find the birch oil 
is the most pleasing to our nose. Of course, who knows what the dogs feel? Okay, so uh, they might not. They might not like that. Who knows? Uh, but generally, I think it's standard, quote unquote, to start with the birch, basically because that's what everybody's been doing right along. Uh, so I normally follow that path and I start my dog or start my students dogs on the birch I recommend them to do that uh, I've had some people say no we're going to start with clove let's say and their dogs are are fine and they can locate all three odors now without any problem whatsoever so mm-hmm. yep use this choice okay. basically mm-hmm. so what kind of container and other items am I also going to need besides the scent yeah, that's a good question. Uh, if our listeners uh, buy a kit, okay, uh, you're going to find there's going to be various other items within the kit. Um, so let's just start with some of the uh, the basics as far as what you'll find in the kit, or maybe if our listeners want to assemble their own kit, they certainly can do that there too. Uh, you'll have tweezers okay i'll get more to that in a minute here you'll have some cotton balls some q-tips where you're going to be soaking the odor in and you're going to have some vessels uh that you're going to be storing the q-tips or the cotton balls in with the essential oil uh so let's just kind of review that really really briefly as far as the whole process of uh, preparing the the odor because I think that is going to be the first step for our for our training. Uh, you'll have a clean plastic vessel or a metal vessel. Most people uh, have a clean one as far as, or excuse me, a plastic one as far as in their kits or their assembly of said kit. And you'll have your Q-tips and cotton balls in there, just the tips of the Q-tips, not the whole thing, okay, just the tips of it. And you'll put them in that vessel, put a few drops of the uh, essential oil in it, usually three to five drops. And now that is considered your storage vessel, okay? That is where your scent is stored for eventual use, okay? When it's time to work your dog, you will be removing uh, one of those Q-tips or the cotton ball with your tweezers. You don't want to handle it with your your bare hands. More on that in a moment. And you'll put that soaked Q-tip or soaked cotton ball in a smaller vessel, usually metal, uh, like a little metal tin. It's usually like about a half an inch long, half an inch wide. That's usually found in those scent work kits, or you could purchase them separately. Some people use a very small plastic vessel. Uh, DNA tubes, uh, I think probably most of our listeners are familiar with that from watching crime shows on TV. That's a common uh, holder for the soaked Q-tip or soaked cotton ball also. Okay, The thing is you want a small small container that will fit the Q-tip or cotton ball and yet not so large that the dog is going to have a visual on it, okay? So we'll put our soaked Q-tip or soaked cotton ball in that that container and that's now collectively called the source, the source of the odor. 
that source is what we're going to be using to imprint our dog. We're going to hide the source eventually in various locations. That is where the dog needs to be able to alert to, a.k.a. the source. Uh, so let's review really quickly. We have a storage vessel where we have multiple soaked Q-tips, soaked cotton balls, where we soak them with the essential oil. We then remove one of the Q-tips or one of the cotton balls, and we put that, that into a smaller vessel, usually metal or plastic, and that vessel then in turn is called the source. We then hide the source at various locations, the dog needs to find the source and then ultimately give us an alert that this is where it's at. Uh, mentioned the tweezers as far as removing the soaked Q-tips or cotton balls. The other thing you want to make sure uh, we do when we are preparing the source, we want to make sure we wear some plastic or latex type gloves so that any oil that might be spilled on us is not transferred elsewhere. Okay, we want to keep it clean and we want to make sure that the only odor is coming from is from the vessel where the Q-tip or cotton ball is and not on our hands. That's also why we use the, uh, the tweezers too. Uh, you don't want to be reaching into this vial of five, six soaked Q-tips with all this oil in it and have your hands contaminated and then go hide your source and inadvertently drag your hand across, let's say, a countertop or something, and now you got all that oil in multiple locations. So you want to think clean when you're preparing your source. <laughs> and, you know, because now i got my, my container and I've got the scent source in it, and I guess I can't just put it in any old place and expect the dog to find it. How do I... Um, train the dog to um, recognize the scent or imprint on the scent. Right. That's, that's, that's good. That's your first foundation uh, block for training. Before we go into that, Eva, I I just thought of something um, with regards to preparing, uh, preparing the source with the uh, essential oil. Uh, I want to tell our listeners that when you're preparing your source, use only one oil at a time. You don't want to be mixing oils up all together, okay? So if you're going to be preparing birch, you want to use birch. If you want to prepare uh, uh, clove, you want to use clove. If you want to use vanilla, you use vanilla. Um, You don't want to mix them all together in one storage vessel and, hey, look, I can train my dog on five different odors at the same time. Uh, You want to... well, yeah, I, I've actually had that question on from more than one one of my students. Uh, you know, nowadays uh, everybody wants the final results today, and okay, well, if one is good, then ten is better. Ah, uh, that kind of thing. And <laughs> not, not, not necessarily. You're going to confuse your dog if you do that. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so that's 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 an important um, important point to make. Okay, when you're preparing your scent vessel, where you're uh, 
chips and cotton balls are stored and you put your oil in it there, you want a separate one for clove, you want a separate one for birch, you want a separate one for anise, you want a separate one for any odor that you're going to be using. So your apples and oranges are separated in essence. Uh, I just I just wanted to make sure we interjected that uh, lest we cause some confusion on our uh, canine partners when we're starting this activity and they give us a look like, okay, which odor do you want us to find here? Uh, that kind of thing there. So back to your uh, original question with regards to starting the imprinting process. Uh, I like to use positive motivation. I like to use food reward. Uh, I like to use uh, praise rewards, that sort of thing. And I would encourage our listeners to follow suit uh, as I feel it gives you a more confident, eager to please dog and one that's willing to willing to take a chance to try to figure out what you want from them as opposed to building a dog that is afraid to expand upon their thought process. So what I do is I take our uh, take our uh, scent vessel where we have all our Q-tips in, uh, remove one while we're in gloves, get the pair of tweezers, remove it, put it into our smaller uh, vessel. So now we have our source, as we talked about earlier. We're going to take off our gloves at this point and bring our dog towards us. Dog will be facing us. They don't have to sit or lay down. They can stand. And we have the source in one hand, and now we have a motivator in our other hand. Our motivator could be uh, a food tidbit, uh, a small toy, something that you could hide in your hand. You don't want uh, a big 20-inch long piece of rawhide in one hand and this little tiny scent vessel in your other hand. Uh, you want basically the items in your hand to be hidden from your dog, visually speaking. So our dog is standing in front of us and or sitting or whatever, and at now this point you're going to probably see their nose start working. They're going to be smelling something different, and that's good. That's good. So we're going to bring our hands out in front of our dog, present our hands to our dogs, spread your hands apart, probably a few feet. It all depends on the size of your dog. Uh, if your dog is standing, your dog is sitting, that sort of thing. You don't want to hold them together. Basically, you're separating the essential oil odor from, let's say, the food odor or the toy odor that's in your other hand. Hopefully, at this point, your dog is going to make a motion towards the hand with the essential oil odor in it. When they do that, they're going to be touching it with their nose. You'll then immediately move your other hand closer and reward the dog. Either give them the tidbit or play with the toy a little bit, that sort of thing. Most dogs do this fairly well the first, first couple attempts. What then mm -hmm. happens, what then happens, they're, uh, they're smart, okay? Uh, we know they're smart. Uh, then they try to figure out, wait a minute, that other hand has a goodie in it, or that other hand has my toy in it. If I sit or stare at that for a while, my owner's going to give it to me, and I'm not even going to worry about the odor, okay? I'm kind of paraphrasing our dog's thought process. Uh, that's a very common problem in the imprinting process, and usually that could be alleviated by moving that hand 
the hand with the motivator in it a little bit further away from the dog versus the hand with the source. So mm-hmm. let's kind of review that really briefly a little bit as far as the process and then a little bit of the problem solving that we can also do. We have our dog in front of us. They don't have to be sitting. They don't have to be um, laying down. They could just be standing there. We have our source with the essential oil odor in one hand. We have the motivator, uh, a food tidbit, a favorite toy, something that's small and contained and not visual to the dog. In the other hand, we're going to present both hands to the dog, spread our hands maybe two, three feet apart, depending on the size of the dog, uh, what whether the dog is sitting, standing, that sort of thing. Hopefully at that point we're going to be able to visually see the dog, uh, dog's nose working when they smell something different. Uh, hopefully they're going to be moving a little bit towards the hand where we have the the odor in, the, uh, the source odor. When they move to that hand and they touch the hand, we will then reward them with the motivator from our other hand. Uh, if we get a problem where the dog is more interested in the hand with the motivator, then we can move that hand further away from the dog relative to the hand with the essential oil odor in it. In other words, we're making the essential odor uh more in closer proximity to the dog, and therefore they're going to be more indicative of that hand first, and therefore then we can reward the dog from the motivator hand. And mm-hmm. if we re- yeah, yeah, and if we repeat this process a few times, uh, what usually happens is the dog learns to associate the odor with the food reward or the uh, the toy reward or even just a simple praise. Okay, had a boy, good boy, good girl, that's awesome, thank you, thank you. Uh, then they'll associate that as being a good thing and they'll be more uh, willing to uh, indicate and to search out that particular odor long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so now let's say I think, okay, my dog's got it. They, they recognize this person <laughs> they're supposed to be interested in. Do I need to train them um, a specific indication or, you know, how do I, how is the dog going to communicate to me in a, when they have to actually search that they've, found the odor. Right, right, right. Well, the alert and most of our listeners being from the uh, search and rescue world, uh, perhaps law enforcement, they will recognize that the alert is the accumulation of a behavioral chain. Uh, the dog is is searching for a particular odor, uh, be it narcotics, be it the subject, be it uh, the essential oils in a case of nose work is what we're referring to right now. Uh, the dog is searching for it. They get into the odor zone, if you will, okay, and then the accumulation is an alert to the handler that there is something here, uh, no matter what the uh, particular substance is. So, yes, the alert is a key factor for um, training in in canine nose work. Most dogs, through time and with proper motivation in their training, positively motivating them and getting the dog to be confident that the handler is working with them, most dogs will give 
some sort of alert on their own. Uh, they will sit, they will paw, they will bark without really any prompting from the handler, uh, especially if we delay the reward system slightly. Uh, by a few seconds at a time, the dog is going to get a little bit more eager to get the reward, and therefore they're going to present to us some sort of an alert behavior. Usually it's a pawing, uh, it could be a sitting, it could be a barking, uh, it could be uh, something very subtle, such as a more intense stare at the handler. Um, these are all behaviors that can be built upon if our listener wanted to do so with their dog, or they could be just rewarded as is. Uh, for instance, one of my students' dogs, uh, he will paw at the source. She didn't want that necessarily. She wanted a bark, so she basically told the dog to speak. Once the dog pawed, she told him to speak. Eventually, through training, he would bark, give voice, and she would then reward the dog at that point. Uh, so that's another manner in which our listeners can help to train the alert. They could actively give some sort of command when the dog gets to the source and then reward that particular action. So there's a couple ways our listeners can work it. I do want to interject one side point to this, though. When it comes time to teaching the alert, if the handler wants to actively shape the dog, in other words, like let's use my student's example, she told the dog to bark. That's what we would consider active shaping because you're telling the dog to do something as opposed to passive shaping where the dog is offering you a behavior. Make sure... Uh, the dog understands the behavior we're telling them first before we start to chain it into the complexities of canine nose work. If the dog doesn't know how to speak, now is not a good time to try to teach him to speak while we're also teaching them to alert to the source. Um, that behavior should be taught separately. Uh, another example of that, if you want your dog to lay down at the source, if they don't know how to lay down in general, then that would be something to teach first before you start integrating it into uh, canine nose work. <laughs> okay. Um, so Somebody's say, barking in our background. <laughs> yeah, that's Boomer. That's his favorite indication for anything. <laughs> How appropriate oh, for the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a package is being delivered to my porch. And, oh. yeah, he's, he's, I'm upstairs and he's downstairs. Yep, here comes here comes uh, something. Okay. It's your uh, nose anyways. package, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say now I've gotten... You know, a lot of people listening obviously are probably, um, you know, they're they're uh, high drive people, shall we say? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Search it. You know, many are, my listeners are in search and rescue, or they're doing something with their dog, so they say, okay, now my dog seems to know what he or she's doing. How could I compete? What are um, some organizations I could compete with, or what kind of titles could I earn? Right, right. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's wonderful in the fact that there are several governing organizations that allow us to be able to take this 
intrinsically fun activity and rewarding activity and be able to actually compete with it. Uh, as you said, a lot of uh, high-dry people, uh, m- myself included, uh, we like that thrill of competition and being tested like that. So it's great that there are organizations like that. Probably the one that our listeners will be most uh, likely to encounter would be uh, the American Kennel Club, uh, AKC. Most people are aware of them as a group. Uh, they have a sister group, uh, the United Kennel Club, which also offers set work competitions. And then there are a couple other groups that offer just scent work competitions, one of them called Performance Scent Dogs and another one called National Association of Canine Scent Work. Those two groups, that is all they offer are nose work, scent work trials, whereas the American Kennel Club and the United Kennel Club they offer these trials in addition to many other types of activities. And I want to emphasize this, too, to our listeners. This is not the competition, per se. is not an activity just for people with purebred dogs. This is an activity where dogs of mixed parentage can also successfully compete and compete just as well as the purebred dogs. So... If any of your listeners have a mixed breed dog and want to compete, they should not be discouraged by uh, some of these groups having the reputation of only being for purebreds. Uh, that's simply not the case when it comes to this particular competition, the nose work competition. So to reiterate, these groups that offer competitions for canine nose work would be the American Kennel Club, the United Kennel Club, Performance Scent Dogs, and the National Association of Canine Scent Work. And if our listeners were to go to the websites of each of these groups, then they would find information on how to get their dog registered and find some uh, competitions in their area. Mm-hmm. And so what sort of searches um, might one be asked to, to perform? Okay, searches, types of searches. Good question. Uh, Keeping in mind that canine nose work has its roots in the search and rescue field, which your listeners are uh, sure to be familiar with. Also, the law enforcement field as far as drug detection, accelerant detection. So keeping that in mind, the types of searches in competition reflect that to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, There's four main categories, actually five. Uh, I'll I'll hit all all five of them very briefly. There are what we call container searches. These containers, think of it like the dog searching luggage at the airport, okay? If it's a box shape, it's a container. Uh, It doesn't have to be a box per se, but something that can hold an item would be considered a container. Usually you see boxes, uh, suitcases, coolers, uh, you know, uh, pl- uh, plastic paper cups with lids on them, that sort of thing there. Uh, so that is what we would call a container search. An interior search, uh, think of inside a school or office complex where uh, 
somebody might be hiding drugs or contraband or something, okay, and the dog has to search through the desks or uh, where all the books are stored or a gymnasium or a locker room, something of that nature, that would be considered an interior search. Exterior search, same thing uh, as far as the uh, type of type of area that needs to be covered, very similar to interior, except, of course, by its name, exterior, it's outside. Uh, playground sets, let's say, uh, park areas, storefronts, uh, office fronts, that kind of thing, that is what would be an exterior search. You could also have, like, let's say, a garden plot, okay, uh, where the essential oil is hidden somewhere in that type of setting there, too. That would also be considered exterior. Vehicles, if it has wheels on it, it's considered a vehicle. Uh, lawnmowers, cars, uh, I guess an airplane, okay, even though I've never heard of that, all right, but I'm, uh, I guess that would be <laughs> I guess that could be considered a vehicle search, too. Uh, uh, yeah, motorcycles, that kind of thing there. If it has, again, wheels, then it's considered a vehicle search. Draw the parallel of that to the drug detection dog or the contraband detection dog that is searching a vehicle uh, for those substances. That's where your vehicle search comes from. I think it's pretty straightforward, that type of uh, searching. And then the fifth one is um, the buried search, where the essential oil is actually buried underground. And that harkens to the cadaver type training where um, the particular subject might be buried. So that is uh, relatively new. Uh, that just came out last year as far as the buried search competition. And that's already proving to be a nice challenge for a lot of handlers who haven't perhaps trained their dogs to do something like that. Uh, so these are the various types of searches, containers, interior, exterior, vehicle searches, and buried searches that our listener may encounter if they chose to compete with their dogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the course of this talk, you've mentioned some of the things that people need to be aware of. Are there any other common training errors or pitfalls um, that you want to review? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest pitfall is progressing too quickly. Uh, people want to jump ahead in this activity, understandably so. Uh, it's it's fun watching the dogs work. Uh, the dogs are eager to go, and people tend to leap ahead without taking small incremental steps in their training, building the dog from, okay, well, we have an indication, we have some sort of imprinting on our dog, our dog knows what clothes smells like, uh, okay, let me go hide this in a parking lot with 20 different cars and our dog will find it no problem. Uh, that might happen, uh, but chances are you're going to get a confused dog in the meantime. So I would encourage our listeners to train progressively you don't want to hold the dog back but on the same token train in incremental steps such that the dog understands 
what we're asking them to do. Uh, many of our listeners, their dogs are already experienced in the mechanics of searching, and so this progression might go a little bit faster than the average dog that does not have such experience. However, the handler should still be cautious that they don't oversee the dog's ability. And certainly if we're starting a new dog that doesn't have any previous experience doing a type of search work, we want to be extra careful in that incremental process. Uh, having said all that there, I want to also interject in the fact of keeping the training motivational, keep it such that we build the dog's confidence and also their enthusiasm as we're working. And the way to do that is train to succeed. Let the dog succeed. Let the dog understand with what we are showing them. You're going to build a confident dog. You're going to build a motivated dog. You're going to build a dog that wants to work and is excited to work, no matter what their uh, genetic background is as far as their tendency to want to work there still is that drive that can be built in through training. And I would encourage our listeners to make their techniques such that that drive is built up as opposed to suppress. <laughs> and are there any other resources? You know, somebody says, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, is there a textbook of canine nose work or any right, other particular right. resources? Yeah, yeah, there there are some resources out there. There um there's a few online programs where our if our listeners were to type in uh, online training canine nose work, there are a few ebooks out there where people can get some of the rudimentary basics and foundations down. Uh there's a couple online schools that do the similar type of program as far as teaching the basics and getting the dogs starting the searching. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to explore that venue, but also explore a little bit of the brick and mortar menu, if you will, as far as looking up for a local trainer and working with a trainer to uh, help to problem solve some of these situations that may arise uh, right there on the spot spontaneously. Um, and basically, I would say for our listeners to type in canine nose work trainers in their local area, uh, and some training schools should pop up, and or private trainers perhaps, depending on the location. And then I would encourage our listeners to correspond to those individuals and see maybe they, they can either enroll in a class or do some one-on-one -on -one type lessons, uh, that sort of thing there. The, those would probably be the areas I would say to start off with. Okay. Well, thanks. Um, I think this has been a very informative talk. And yeah, I yeah, yeah. Anybody, I, yeah. I think so too. Okay, thanks. I'm going to the end of recording. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.